there and welcome to Meet Me in the Middle, the podcast that seeks the middle ground in the sometimes problematic wellness world. My name is Annika Buckle. I'm Jenny Omani. And I'm Lee Freiling. Um, so as per every one of these episodes in our nutrition mini series, please just know trigger warning, content warning, dieting, weight loss, calorie counting. Um, if you do not have the capacity, even for that just today, again, animal Instagram is going to be a great way for you to spend the next 40 minutes. So good. <laughs> so good. Um, okay. So as we were talking about last week, um, you know, the bulk of our conversation focused around the health at every size movement, um, intimately connected with the ideas behind health at every size is something called intuitive eating. So intuitive eating is basically the opposite of intermittent fasting. <laughs> um, before we dive in, uh, I'm just curious if either of you have any personal experiences or feelings about intuitive eating, um, Lee, do you want to share anything? And then Jenny, you can go next. Yeah. I think that, um, I've done some like really concerted work around intuitive eating, um, and worked with like an intuitive eating sort of practitioner at one point, uh, at the time I really thought that intuitive eating was another really cool way to lose weight. Um, and had to learn real fast that it was not that, um, and so a lot of people, uh, I think, struggle with kind of that sort of unlearning thing because it's another way of eating. And I think we have latched on to ways of eating as ways to lose weight, but this is not it. Um, in general, I think that uh, it's a real journey because it entails you having to work to actually trust yourself. And when we live in a culture that tells women that you cannot be trusted, that your insides are lying to you and they're going to make you terrible um, in some way or another, uh, that that becomes really hard. Yeah. I have no experience with intuitive eating. I think it's one of those things where I'm like, that sounds like a great way to enjoy food yeah. <laughs> but it sounds like work so hi well good news you're gonna learn all about it today so you can Perfect. choose to move forward with it or not so just like with health at every size um this kind of as a larger concept was first popularized by a book called intuitive eating a Shockingly. revolutionary program that works yep um, there are a few things that like capital I E intuitive eating is not that I didn't really realize prior to kind of researching this episode. One thing is that eating intuitively is not the same as capitalized intuitive eating. Eating intuitively is an aspect of IE, but more specifically describes a way of eating that is the way we eat innately reaching for food when we feel hunger or need comfort and stopping eating when we feel full or satisfied. Intuitive eating capitalized is the philosophy around and method for getting closer to that innate relationship. The other thing that intuitive eating isn't is mindful eating. Again, this is an aspect of it, but it's not mutually exclusive. Oh, so it's like a name. Totally. Oh. So no. now that we know what it isn't, I'll let the two authors define it for us. Quote, intuitive eating is a self-care eating framework, which integrates instinct, emotion, and rational thought it was created by two dietitians, Evelyn Tribble and Elise Resch in 1995. Intuitive eating is a weight inclusive evidence-based model with a validated assessment scale and over a hundred studies to date. It is a personal and dynamic process, which includes 10 principles. One, reject diet mentality. Two, honor your hunger. Three, make peace with food. 
four, challenge the food police, five, Mm -hmm. respect your fullness, six, discover the satisfaction factor, seven, honor your feelings without using food, eight, respect your body, nine, exercise, feel the difference, and 10, honor your health with gentle nutrition. Mm -hmm. I mean, that all sounds great. (laughs) So the idea is that these principles kind of work in two ways. One, by helping you tune into your own physical sensations, which will meet both biological and psychological needs. I think this is something that we've touched on a little bit, but, you know, it's like, oh, you're just eating for comfort. You know, you're just eating for like, there's somehow something wrong with that. Like it's broken that (laughs) there's something wrong with reaching for a cookie when you miss your grandma. Mm-hmm. There is nothing wrong with a warm, gooey bowl of mac and cheese on a oh, cold, no. rainy day. No, Heck it yeah. is uh, scientifically peer-reviewed and proven <laughs> in the Omani be, household. <laughs> be good for your soul. Yeah, yeah. Um, Close, closest well, way to totally heaven. Right. It had a control group of five. <laughs> no, oh, four. I got, four. I got one outlier. Oh. <laughs> That's how you know it's real science. So uh, bad, Annabelle. So bad. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so the second principle or the idea, you know, behind it, behind kind of why these principles work the way that they do together is that you're removing the obstacles and disruptions to that kind of tuning into your needs. These issues most often come from our minds in the form of existing beliefs and assumptions often in like the voice of, I don't know, a mother figure or, um, the 17 magazines you used to read when you were in grade five. (laughs) Yeah. YM magazine. Oh my God. Yeah. Young and modern. (laughs) Um, so the idea is that intuitive eating is a practice designed to honor both physical and mental health, right? Not just nutrition. Birthday cake isn't a bad choice. Food is so much more than just, you know, A meets B. We are not robots, much to the chagrin, I think, of a lot of people in the biohacking world. (laughs) Mm. I Um, think chagrin is the apt term. Apt. Um, so to quote from the authors tied back to kind of what we were talking about last week, intuitive eating is aligned with health at every size because of the pursuit of intentional weight loss is a failed paradigm, which creates health problems, including weight stigma, weight cycling, and eating disorders. All bodies deserve dignity and respect. Mm-hmm. I kind of secretly laugh at this to myself because I think about this as like the best biohack ever. I listened to my body and then I gave it what it asked for. Yeah. <laughs> So true. So true. But there is zero dollars to be made with that biohack. So it is rendered useless. Mm-hmm. Can't monetize that shit, Annika. No, no you cannot. Womp womp. Um, so I kind of want to address some of the misconceptions. Um, and I'll tell the story about my own experience here because I think it's really relevant to kind of what a lot of times people will say in response to this. I was first introduced to this concept um, by my good friend, who's also a nutrition coach. This wasn't a formal coaching session, but it was something that actually totally revolutionized the way that I think. Um, I was complaining about feeling frustrated with trying to restrict what I was eating, that the ways I was previously able to lose weight didn't seem to be working for me anymore. Um, She said, and I'll be paraphrasing because this was like three or four years ago. What happens if you let yourself eat the cheese and crackers? And I said something along the lines of, well, that would be bad. And she said, is it possible that food doesn't have morality? And I was like, well, yeah, I mean, okay, that makes sense. It's it's an inanimate (laughs) object. Fine. (laughs) Oh, I mean, okay, but, 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 but. 
And she said, what are you afraid of? And I said, well, I'm afraid if I eat the cheese and crackers, I won't be able to stop eating the cheese and crackers. All I'm going to want to do is eat cheese and crackers. I'll eat too much. Which, of course, you know, she replied with, I promise eventually cheese and crackers won't be the only thing you want to eat once you give yourself permission to eat them when you want. And, you know, shocker, of course, she was right. But I think this is one of the biggest misconceptions that I think leads people to say, like, oh, that would never work for me. I just binge junk food all day. What we forget is so often this binging is our body's response to restriction. Mm-hmm. It's like the old, like, mm-hmm. don't think about pink elephants. What's the first thing you just thought about? Yeah, pink elephant. <laughs> Intuitive eating isn't just eating whatever you want, whenever you want, without regard for anything else. That would be called the eat whatever you want and exactly what you want every time you crave anything diet, which is how I ate when I was pregnant. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's about eating in a way that satisfies, but also nourishes as an act of self-care, which is baked into those kind of 10 principles. So what has to happen first is the healing of that constant sense of being deprived, which sometimes takes a lot of time and Mm -hmm. will sometimes for people mean weight gain, which can be very uncomfortable if that's something that you've, you know, had baked into your beliefs that is bad and you're bad for, you know, but once you become habituated to some of those previously quote unquote bad foods, it's easier to find balance. Totally. Totally. I think it's, I think it's really an interesting thing because when you don't let your health self have any, let's say sugar, for example, right? Which is a real common one in the, in the uh, wellness world, right? Sugar is highly demonized, especially refined sugar or white sugar. If you don't let yourself have any sugar and you're, what I find is I see a lot of people eating a lot of alternative things, right? (laughs) So like a lot of like, oh, it was sweetened with date syrup. Okay. Well, it's still sweet, right? So like, good for you. And she's like, oh, I just can't stop eating these blah, 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 whatever it is. Date bars. (laughs) Right. Exactly. You know, people think that they're going to get into their kids' Halloween candy if you even let your kids have Halloween candy and they'll never stop. And I think that that's a really interesting thing because I can tell you that after like two or three, let's say Reese's peanut butter cups, this body is done with those. Like (laughs) this body is like, thank you for those things. They are really tasty. If you make us eat any more, we're going to barf. It's a bad idea. We feel really sick right now. You know, so I, I think what I think is so hard about this aspect of intuitive eating, and it is one of the sort of first parts of it, right. Is believing your body, believing that your body is going to tell you we have had enough. And I think that especially when for so long you have been either restricting or denying and then feeding something that's like, sort of like, you know, the echo of the thing you actually really want, you know, like (laughs) vegan cheese as opposed to actual cheese, right? The date bar instead of the Reese's peanut butter cup. Totally. Right. And because the date bar or the vegan cheese never fully satiated you, maybe you even had a little bit too much of those things for yourself. And so you think like, okay, well, there's no way I could stop myself from eating Mm. the Reese's peanut butter cups ad nauseum or or, or a whole wheel of cheese. (sighs) Except- I don't know. I don't think it doesn't actually feel good to eat a whole wheel of cheese. No, it sure doesn't. Right. And I mean, we've talked about this before too, right? The way that after a holiday weekend, your body is like, oh my God, can I have a salad, please? That would be amazing right now. You know, green juice sounds like a great idea. I come home, I'm like green juice every day for a week. I am, I feel terrible. Right. And not that I didn't enjoy it at the time and not that I'm bad for having done those things, but you know, this is that kind of regulation piece that when we really tune into what our body actually wants, it really actually doesn't want to eat cheese and crackers all day. Even if it's delicious when you do eat it. 
And I think that this is a further aspect of just the fact that women are constantly told that we can't trust ourselves in like any respect, right? Like we're supposed to outsource knowledge and all the things for everybody, like for all the things, right? Like childbirth and kid rearing and food and what should you do with your job and when should you go to bed and make sure everything is tracked, like, as opposed to just being like, cool thing. I have this body that tells me it's tired cool thing. I have this body that tells me it's hungry. And if I think about it, what I really want to eat is like an apple, mm-hmm. you know, or whatever. But because we've been basically told not to listen to ourselves for most of our lives, it's for a lot of people, it's damn near impossible to do. Right. I mean, this is the other piece, right? Is that this instinct to binge doesn't always come from restricting certain foods, but also just straight up, not actually eating enough food right? I skip lunch or maybe you skip breakfast because you're intermittent fasting. And then by <laughs> 3 p.m., you know, I'm ravenous. So of course I want to yeah. eat all the cheese and crackers. They're on hand. They're easy to eat. They're a nice blend of carbs and fat. I'm already making them for my kid. Well, of course I just want to eat all that and nothing but that. I know we talked about it before, but I see so many people eating 1200 calories a day. And if your eating plan is less per day than is recommended for my eight-year-old, then yeah, weird. You feel like you want to binge or you feel out of control around certain foods you know, compound that with the food police. No wonder we feel like we have to outlaw things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, one of the other criticisms that I came across kind of ties back into this idea that like intuitive eating doesn't consider nutrition, right? I know, you know, we've debunked some of this as a red herring in that last episode, but I also think this is one of the key places that we divest from eating intuitively into capitalized IE intuitive eating. That final principle is quote, gentle nutrition, which in place of nutrients and calories focuses on eating in a way that feels good. It energizes your body. It's satisfying and enjoyable. I also want to note here that, you know, the authors talk about how this is the last principle because it can feel, it can be really hard to feel what's happening in your body when you're so used to, like you said, Lee, outsourcing, dieting, um, you know, when you're deeply immersed in food rules, Um, this is also why it can be such a beautiful antidote to disordered eating or eating disorders, because it does encourage you to come back to trusting your body, not the patriarchy, not Weight Watchers, not your sister-in-law's meal replacement program, not the clock. This is your body and you get to decide. Yeah. And I think, you know, when you're, when you have a body that you're used to feeling so gross in, in some way or another, right. Because you're either not eating enough or you're trying to stretch your fasting window, or I'm not eating X right now, you know, it becomes really tricky to like uh, recognize and understand that feeling. And actually for some people, especially people with a history of disordered eating, the, the feeling of fullness or be feeling satisfied is really unsettling and feels almost dangerous. Right. Mm-hmm. So, because for them, that has, that's like the sign that they're out of control or they haven't, whatever that happens to be. So, I mean, I'm, I appreciate you talking about how this is like the last sort of principle. There's a lot of other things to sort of conquer first. Yeah. Well, and I also think, you know, a lot of, what I was reading around this is like, you know, people are like, oh, I tried it and it didn't work for me. Well, if you're trying to turn this into a diet, no, it's not going to work because that's not what it is. If you're trying to lose this to lose, use this to lose weight, that's not going to work. If you're trying to turn this into rules, it's not going to work. That's not the point. That's not the purpose. 
Um, but you touched on something that I kind of would love us to dive into a little bit more. Um, this kind of like idea of these quote unquote, hyper palatable foods, packaged foods that offer tantalizing combinations of fat, sugar, salt, carbohydrates. Um, there is sometimes a conversation around the fact that they interfere with brain signals so that we keep craving them even when we're full or, you know, we don't feel full, even if we've eaten a lot of it. I know a lot of people in the wellness world love to talk about, you know, these foods are engineered to make you want to keep eating them. Um, you know, y'all, totally. y'all know I'm happy <laughs> any chance I get to blame mega corporations and capitalism. Um, so I did want to dig in to see if there's any credence here, but like so much that we've been talking about, what's really tricky, you know, there are severe limitations to actual human science. We have our own nutrition. So, you know, this mm -hmm. isn't an answer we can package up neatly, you know, in the middle of a podcast. Um, and in fact, this may be something we don't have a clear grasp on for years or even ever partly because most of the studies and articles that I found talking about ultra processed foods all focused on obesity or BMI. And there were very few that focused specifically on health outcomes um, that were maybe very, very small sample sizes or very short in duration, not really leading to anything we can point at as clear outcomes. Right. Uh, you know, I think it's an interesting thing to talk about sort of like pre-made meals, for example. Now, I love cooking and I'm a good cook. And so we eat really well and we eat fresh food, like I'd say five out of seven days on gen in general, right? Uh, being sick this past week, that was not happening. There is no me getting up and cooking. So Lance was cooking, but Lance is also trying to run everything. And so he meal planned basically five frozen dinners, right? Like a frozen lasagna, some frozen quiche, some frozen this, frozen that, like just stuff that he could like dump on a tray and throw in the oven. And it totally met our needs because we just needed to eat and no, nobody starved. Nobody <laughs> starved. No one died of starvation over Tick. the week of everyone being sick, <laughs> yeah. except for one function. Fantastic. Adult. You're all living. I'm impressed. There was a quiche in there, yeah. <laughs> but like, but like genuinely by the end of those four five, six days, I looked at him and I was like, I'm pretty sure part of the reason why I continue to feel so bad is because I haven't eaten mm -hmm. quote unquote real food. What my body understands is real yeah, food you're used to in like yeah. over a week, because again, my body's very used to eating in that way. And he was like, yeah, me too. And so I like sucked it up and made like this really yummy soup. And we were all like, oh my God, this is like the best thing. I've oh. ever, ever had all this extra kale thrown in here. Thank goodness. <laughs> there was totally kale in it. And we were very was. happy about it, you know? Yeah. And I think, I think that's kind of, you know, that's kind of part of it. I have the privilege of knowing what a body that is well-nourished feels like, right? Not everybody has that privilege. Not mm -hmm. everybody has the time or the willingness or the want or the desire or the access to be able to cook really well, you know, for themselves and their family all of the time. And, you know, they exist off of, I don't know, chicken figures, which is again, fine. They're not dead. And they don't necessarily know that it feels different otherwise, but also there's some real barriers to entry in terms of them being able to access that feeling. You know, it's, it's, that's a, that's a tricky one. I also think like when circling back to what you're saying, Annika, about, um, you know, this food being engineered for it to be addictive. I think if you look at food science, I find a lot of the stuff and I, this is not my expertise, but 
at all, but I just find it interesting. A lot of the stuff, it's it's like very anticlimactic, the rationale for things. <laughs> it's like, is this combination of chemicals used to be addictive? It's like, well, no, because it actually makes the chicken taste like chicken and it's like highly processed. So like and it's it like cheaper the flavor. For them to use. It was <laughs> cheaper. It extends the shelf life. We can do like it's like really boring chemistry stuff. It's not like like hey, 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 hey they'll never stop eating these instant noodles now. And it, it it's like like how how do we make the idea of food scientists just like more <laughs> I mean like rubbing their hands wickedly over their cauldron it's all about fake like, chicken flavor <laughs> I mean think about it these are businesses that make consumable products mm-hmm. how do you make money with consumable products well you people like have to consume them and buy more right so it's it's like so how do you if you are making affordable consumable products, which is what these usually are, right? They're Mm -hmm. geared to be more accessible for people. Well, then they also need to be shelf stable. They also need to last longer if they're in the fridge or the freezer or whatever. So there's going to be different chemicals and chemicals aren't bad. Okay. Did you know water is a chemical? Because if you didn't (laughs) really rethink how you use the word chemical, you know, they just use different chemicals to make things more affordable um, and accessible to people. I, I, I mean, now is there some goal for it to taste delicious? Yeah, of course. But is there, I mean, I remember looking into this at one point and I couldn't find anything that people like, there was nothing to make it, nothing substantiated that I could find to say that food was being manipulated to make it addictive. Cause we all know that like sugar in and of itself, like has biochemical responses. Like, so Mm -hmm. you could just argue, sure. Anything that has like sugar in it is like made to be addictive. It's like, no, it just tastes really good. By that line of reasoning, you could argue that food is addictive. Oh, you're (laughs) addicted to eating. What the heck? Yeah. You can't stop. You can't stop. (laughs) Or you die. You're now. I also, I do want to say that there are people who for sure have binge eating disorders. And that is a very legitimate thing where they are legitimately addicted Yes. To food and have the same sort of hits dopamine wise and, you know, mentally that like, you know, someone with a shopping addiction or a sex addiction or an addiction of of any kind. Yeah, totally. Yeah. You know, so that is a very, that is a very real thing. And I don't want to make light of that. Um, but to say that, you know, sugar is addictive. I don't know, man. I don't know. I don't think I can, for the average person who does not suffer from disordered eating. I don't think so. Well, and I think honestly, it's the wrong question in a lot of ways. And I think, you know, this kind of comes back to Lee, what you were saying at the end of our last episode, by necessity, a lot of this conversation happens at an individual level, but where the conversation actually should probably be happening is at an institutional level, rather than fixating on how one individual may or may not be interacting with processed foods. Like, couldn't we make conversations instead around how whole foods can be more accessible and affordable? And I mean, whole foods, not capital H whole foods. I mean, like (laughs) not owned by Amazon whole foods, (laughs) not Jeff Bezos, whole foods, actual, Uh, just like, you know, like actual vegetables and whole grains. Um, you know, I think especially in Canada right now, this is actually a really urgent matter. I have been looking for an excuse to talk about Canada's grocery monopoly or Oh, yes, you have since I sent you a voice memo <laughs> saying that Superstore had terrible supply. And you were like, don't even get me started. So we don't have time for a full in-depth analysis today, but I do think it's worth mentioning 
Um, the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives found that grocery stores booked $7.3 billion in pre-tax profit in 2021, which is more than double what they were clearing the year before the pandemic. And 2021 didn't even have the inflation that we've seen in 2022. Grocery prices are one of the two biggest drivers of high inflation right now. Right. Yes, there is an argument that grocery prices are going up everywhere, but Canada's were already some of the highest out of any G7 nations, even pre-2022. of course you know and of course there's an argument about our small market you know we are the state of california and our huge geography we're the second largest land mass country in the world right those things simply necessitate it costs more money to get smaller amounts of things to here um that's the fuel cost to transport and all that stuff right okay fine (laughs) fine but I I feel like that's all the more reason we should be seeing better control for things like vegetables, whole grains, proteins. Like yeah. imagine if we could put the energy into policing what individual people eat into creating institutional or systemic change to make those healthy choices easier and more affordable for people. Oh, a totally. Radical idea. Radical yeah. idea. Totally. Well, and if you look at like school lunches, right? The hot lunch program, I, I believe recently was given a whole bunch of new criteria yes. for stuff that they had to, to do, you know, like, and it limited the amount of vendors they could use. And there's not that many vendors who can produce large amount. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, great. Well, this so, but, is a, yes. But if totally. you're catering for an entire elementary school, who has the capacity to do that? Well, and there's only so many ways. No, this is just it. I mean, our school is dealing with this right now. You know, our hot lunch program is optional and it's only two days a week. Right. So already right there, you know, it's not like you don't have to sign on and commit forever. You just sign on to individual days. So right there, Mm -hmm. that creates a supply problem. The flip side of that too is I don't know if y'all don't have kids, maybe you don't realize how much they really just want to eat chicken nuggets and macaroni and cheese oh, yeah. like all the time. Yeah. So how do you create something that your the children are going to want to eat, which means you as a parent are going to want to continue to pay for, but mm-hmm. also meet the nutritional guidelines? Yeah. That's yeah, super, super tricky. Now we're lucky because we have a very small school. And we can use smaller, like local restaurants and all that stuff. But same thing, like they had last year, some really healthy choices. And my kids were like, eh, <laughs> and because I don't want they that. don't throw garbage away at school. It literally shows up in their backpack to come home. So that's a fun <laughs> zero waste or minimal waste school. They just send it home. <laughs> the waste not doesn't less. disappear. The like, waste isn't less. It's just put in my garbage can not theirs oh dear (sighs) but to your point when you look at a systems level yes if there was less time spent if more energy and dollars were spent being like hey you know it's a problem people can't access fresh fruits and vegetables rather than you should eat more fresh fruits and vegetables and we'll make campaigns to tell you that Well, like it's in, like that's new information to people. Like anybody Not anywhere new. on the planet yes, everybody doesn't that. know that you should eat vegetables. Yeah. Like I think we're aware. Right. <laughs> knowing it and being able to put it into practice are two very different things. And the mm-hmm. more we focus on individual solutions, the less we get systemic change that makes that possible for everyone. Mm. Okay. So what do we do from here? How do they change it? 
Annika Buckle, solve the <laughs> problems. Well, I wish it was that easy. I would run for office if I had the answer wrapped up in a nice little two sentence uh, answer at the end of this episode. But what I will say is, um, you know, I think something that has kind of come up over these last two episodes is, you know, we have two pieces. One is healing our own relationships with food and our bodies. And then the other piece is advocating for systems that allow others to do the same. Mm, totally. Love that. Yeah, that's great. Once again, well, Annika Buckle solve all the world's problems, guys. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> well, thanks y'all. This was fun. This was a really fun little arc. So um, thanks for coming down the research rabbit hole with me on this. <laughs> Anytime, buddy. Anytime. You want to talk about food? I'm here all day. <laughs> thanks so much for listening to we really appreciate your support and if you could do us a big favor and subscribe and share this podcast it would mean the world to us